Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to laugh together, for giving us an opportunity to grow together, and for giving us an opportunity, Lord, to, to share in your word. We ask you now to bless us and keep us as we, as we study together. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we are studying Psalm 51, and I want to present to you the idea today that Psalm 51, which is always known as a psalm of repentance, is not simply a psalm of repentance. I'm going to, put, I'm going to postulate a theory today that, that even more than a psalm of repentance, Psalm 51 is a psalm of challenge, and we'll get to that, but I'm going to be making my case for that all the way along today. But you all may remember a song that, that, that came out probably in the 70s or 80s. It was, based on, uh, it was based on Psalm 51. It was called Create in Me a Clean Heart, O God. It was, you may remember it from youth group or, or from the church meetings or something like that. It went, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. Keep not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Now you may remember that and you may, oh thank you. Um, I'm not taking Taylor's place. Uh, you may remember that song and, and you know that was, that was basically the whole song but it was a wonderful refrain that you would sing over and over again and it's really become a part of my devotional life because I don't know about you, but I am someone who is in frequent need of repentance. I am someone who, who needs to have that go-to approach to God that reminds me both of His mercy and my need. But I want to I look today at, at Psalm 51, not simply as a psalm of repentance, but also as a psalm of challenge. So let's, let's talk first about the context of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 has perhaps one of the most specific appellations, that is to say, one of the most specific signature lines or, or descriptor lines in the beginning of any of the Psalms of David. Look, at it says, To the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is a very specific Psalm. It was written in a time of great spiritual and, for that matter, what would become social uh, crisis for the people of Israel. So let's think about, for a second, the, let's think about the context of this psalm. You remember that in 2 Samuel, David had a vassal kingdom within his realm called, uh, well, that was uh, called, the, the, the people were called the Ammonites. And what I mean by a vassal is that they had a king, but that king was subject to David. He was kind of their high king. They paid tribute to him. They paid taxes to him, that sort of thing. And the king of Ammon died. And when the king of Ammon died, uh, David sent several envoys to the funeral because this king had been a loyal vassal of his. He, he sent, several subject, uh, sent several envoys to his funeral to pay the king's respect, uh, respects. Well, one of the advisors of the crown prince of Ammon thought that it was a great insult that David didn't come himself and thought that, that David was sending these envoys, in a sense, to, 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 to show disrespect to the, the dead king of Ammon, which was, which was actually very far from the truth. David did not mean any disrespect by this. But the advisors of this young prince told him that's what he was doing. And so when the... 
royal envoys from, from Jerusalem showed up in Ammon to the funeral. They were set upon by the, by the Ammonites, and they were, they were taken to the side. Their beards were shaved, and all of their garments were cut off from the waist down, and they had to walk back all the way to Jerusalem like that, clean-shaven, which you know, to have that forcibly done was a tremendous insult, and then to be unclothed from the, from the waist down was, of course, a public display of shame. And so because of this bad advice that, that this young man got, he provoked the most powerful king in the area. Well, David heard this, you know, heard about this insult, and he just couldn't stand it. His ego would not allow it. His, you know, his, his reputation, he felt, would not allow it. And so he sent Joab and the army of Israel to put down this insult in Ammon. And, and so you had this war that begins between the Ammonites and the Israelites. Now, that's important because you, you realize that in this in this war, I mean, this was a war that did not have, have to happen. This was a silly, stupid misunderstanding. And yet, David sends his army out into the field to go against the Ammonites. Well, because this was a silly war, because it was not a very consequential war, because it was really more of a police action and a put-down, David decided to stay home. And ordinarily... When the king would send his troops out into battle, the king would go with them. He would, be with, he, would, he would camp with them. He would live with them. He would march with them. But this time, David decided to stay home. And while David was at home, he got distracted. Instead of being out on campaign where he was supposed to be, one night he was wandering around on the parapet of his palace and he happened to look over and see, bathing on the roof, a beautiful young woman who we later found out was named Bathsheba. Now Bathsheba was not there doing anything out of the ordinary or anything provocative. He just happened to live in a house, a palace, which was higher than everybody else's. And probably hers was not the only roof that could be seen, but it was the only one with a naked lady on it at the time, apparently. And so David sees her and just is gripped by lust in his heart, and he sends his servants to find out who she is and to bring her to him. And he finds out that she is the husband of not only one of his soldiers, but one of his elite guard, one of the mighty men named Uriah the Hittite. And she, being a loyal uh, wife to her husband and loyal subject of the king, comes to the palace, and David completely abuses his power, his authority, his role of king, and he takes her into his bed that night. He commits adultery with her. I want to go on record as saying, I do not believe that Bathsheba had any designs for any of this to happen. I mean, I know old movies sort of portray her sometimes as, as a, willing, a willing participant in this. I don't believe that that is true. I don't think the text supports it one bit. I think David in this case, is acting like a Harvey Weinstein or somebody like that. I mean, he is taking advantage of his authority and his power to get what he wants from this woman. So, of course, we know from the story, and I'm sorry I'm kind of gliding over this quickly. We studied this in depth last semester, but over the course uh, of this relationship, he, he brings her in and later finds out that she is with child. Well, this, this kind of creates a problem because even though David, in a sense, feels like he can do anything he wants, he's the king, he still has a reputation to protect, and he is still the king of 
Yahweh of gods, of the Lord's chosen people, and he has a certain moral standard that he is supposed to exhibit. And so he can't just be caught in adultery with, a, with another man's wife, especially when that woman is, one of, is the wife of one of his most elite, most heroic, most glorified soldiers. And so David came up with a plan. He said, what I'll do is I will bring Uriah home from the battle and I will, I'll make sure that he goes in to see his wife and bing, bam, boom, everything will be good. You know, everybody will think it's Uriah's baby. So he brings Uriah home. Hey, Uriah, how are you? Tell me about the battle. Great to hear that. Glad we're doing so well. Tell you what, why don't you, as a reward for being such a loyal soldier, why don't you take a night of liberty with your wife tonight? And Uriah refuses. Well, that's a problem. He needs Uriah to go in and spend the night with his wife. So what does he do? The next night, David says, you know what? I am glad you're still in town. I'm glad you didn't go back. You know, come over to the palace for dinner. And this time, David does what? Gets him drunk and sends him home. But Uriah is such a boy scout, he won't even go home and sleep with his wife while he's home from battle because all of his brothers, all of his companions are still out in the field, sleeping in tents, risking their lives for the king, risking their lives for the king who has brought him home. And he says, my Lord, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, you know, to, uh, to embarrass myself or, or dishonor my brothers by, by doing something that none of the rest of them can do. And so he stays home. Well, now David has a serious problem. And so David decides that the only way that he can take care of this problem is he is going to have to, he is going to, have to get Uriah out of the picture. He's going to have to make sure that Uriah does not come back alive from this ridiculous war with the Ammonites. Do you see how the, how the, story, how the plot is building? This is a war that should never have happened. This is an affair that should never have happened. And now there's going to be a death, a murder that should never have happened. What does David do? David writes a letter to Joab. Who is Joab? Joab was his commanding general. We've talked at length about Joab before. Joab was not only the commanding general of David's forces, he was also the muscle for the house of David. You've got a problem, Joab will clean it up. He's that guy. He's the Luca Brazzi. Uh, as he was to the Corleone family and the Godfather, he is that to the house of David. And so he writes a letter to Joab that says, you need to put Uriah the Hittite in the front line of the battle, and then when the fighting really gets intense, pull everybody else back so that he's exposed and surrounded so that he will be killed. And then he takes the letter, he seals it, and he hands it to Uriah and says, take this to Joab. Loyal Uriah had no idea that he was delivering his own death warrant to his commander. But the plan played out exactly as it was supposed to. Uriah was in the front of the fighting. The soldiers pulled back, the Israelite soldiers pulled back, and he was killed. What a crime, what a waste all to cover up David's indiscretion. So, sometime later, the prophet Nathan comes in to David. 
and says to David, My Lord, you're not going to believe what I've just heard. There was, a, there was a poor man who had one little lamb, and he loved this lamb like his own child, and he treated it like his daughter, and it slept in his bed, and his kids treated it like a member of the family, and it was, oh, it was so precious to him. But his next-door neighbor, this rich guy, had a visitor come over, and, and rather than take one of his numerous sheep that he had, he went over to the poor man's house, he got the poor man's sheep, he slaughtered it, and he fed that to his neighbor so that his flocks wouldn't, wouldn't, he wouldn't lose any of his own sheep. He took this one man's little lamb, the only lamb he had. And this other guy had so many other lambs. But he took the one that he had, and he slew it, and he ate it, and he took it for himself. Can you believe that? And what did David say? He says, I can't believe that this sort of thing is happening in my kingdom. Israel's supposed to be a land of justice. It's supposed to be a place of mercy. How can this possibly happen in my kingdom? This man should be punished. And in possibly one of the greatest dramatic moments in history or literature, Nathan points to him and he says, You are the man. And David is convicted by his own words. Nathan says, you are the one with the guilt here. And, David, and Nathan tells him that he will be punished because he has sinned against God. He has made this an occasion for God's name to be dishonored because he is the man that God has chosen to be king of Israel. Well, the good thing for David is that his response to Nathan's, to Nathan's charge is immediate. It immediately cuts him to the heart. And the same conscience that would have punished the, the uh, infractions of another convicts him and he understands that he has sinned before the Lord. I think this is a moment of absolute clarity and sincerity. I think that David up to this point has been walking around in the dark and the smoke and the mist of his own illusions about himself. And suddenly, Nathan has turned on the light and he can see, David can see, who he really is and what he's really done. And in that moment, he absolutely buckles and falls on the mercy of God. Now, I don't think that David immediately went over to his desk and started writing Psalm 51 at this point. But I think that that what is, what is portrayed as a very, very short single line in, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, that he confessed his sin before the Lord and said, against you, O Lord, against you only have I sinned. I think that that was a condensation. I think that what he did, I think he was on the floor praying, weeping, and the words he was saying, he eventually went back and wrote down later as Psalm 51, as this prayer because I think that he had to keep going back to this incident and saying, Lord, you know what I did. You know what I did. You know what I did. I need you to restore me. I need you to restore me. I need you to restore me. And so what we read in Psalm 51 is a psalm that bursts forth from a broken heart. A heart that was not broken by somebody else, but that David broke himself. And everything that was in it, all of the illusions that he had about himself just came pouring out onto the floor. 
Because I imagine that David had deluded himself about his own righteousness, about his own holiness, about his own favor with God up to this point. For him to do what he did to Bathsheba and what he did to Uriah, that takes a pretty high ego. And isn't it fascinating how when David's ego was the highest, his morality was the lowest. I think that finally in this moment when Nathan confronts him, it flips back. And David's morality, or his conscience, finally surpasses his ego. Let's take a look at this psalm in depth. Psalm number 51. First of all, as we look at this psalm, I want you to do something uh, as an exercise. I want you to think of it not just simply as a psalm of David. I want you to think of it as a psalm of Bob, as a psalm of Kim, uh, Ken, as a, as a psalm of Mary, as a psalm of Emily, as a psalm of, insert your name here. And where it says that Nathan, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba, just replace it with whatever sin you're struggling with right now. This is not, this is not an adultery psalm. This is a psalm of repentance. You know, it made me think, um, you know, we usually sing a hymn in here at the beginning of class. And have you ever looked around the edges of the hymn book? You know, you have, you know, you've got the author and the title, to, uh, the title of the tune, and you've got the, the meter and all those sorts of things. But it always has up at the top or at the bottom, depending on the publication, it says, you know, that this is a hymn for Christmas. This is a hymn for the opening of worship. This is a hymn of adoration and praise. This is a hymn for a national holiday. This is a hymn for, uh, for a, a confirmation or for a baptism. You know what you've never seen in our hymn books? A hymn for adultery. A hymn, a hymn for selfishness. A hymn, uh, you know, in times of great lust. A hymn for great, you know, for great greed. You know, how bold is it that, that, that David has the sincerity, the vulnerability, the transparency to put that in the Hebrew collection of hymns to make it public, to say... I am, I am so in need of God's grace that I need other people to know this. And so we have this great hymn, but it's not just David's hymn. It's also our hymn. Let's look at it for a second. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The opening plea is what? Have mercy. This is the language of somebody who has no claim for justice, no claim for indulgence, no right to anything. He is just throwing himself on the mercy of God. This is not somebody who's making excuses. He's not saying, yes, but I've got a good reason. You weren't there. This is a man who absolutely flays himself and says, have mercy. I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. Just like Isaiah said when he was standing before God in his full presence. Have mercy. You know, when we confess our sin, isn't there always just a little, bit of, just a little part of us that, that qualifies it? You know, oh Lord, I'm sorry I said... I'm sorry that I said that to her, but she really misunderstood what I meant. <laughs> or I'm sorry that I, I acted too slowly, but everybody else was 
you know, they were moving a little faster than me. Whatever it is. Don't we always want to qualify our sin and make some kind of excuse? David bypasses all of that and says, I have no excuse. Have mercy. I have no reason, justification for anything I've done. But then look at, look at that next word, that next line. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Those two words, uh, steadfast love, aren't just descriptions of the way God loves us. Those are actually covenant words. David has the confidence and David has the, the, the courage to plead for God's mercy for one reason, because God is the God who keeps His promises. This is not just a, pray, a plea for mercy. This is, a, this is an appeal to God's constancy, to His reliability. Because we know that God has made His promise to His people. And David is saying, please, keep your covenant with me. I don't deserve it. I, I, you know, I have no claim on it other than your word. You know, it's kind of like the words of the prodigal son when he came back to his father. He didn't say, I'm sorry, Mr. Smith. You know, I once was your son, but I'm not anymore. Would you please give me a chance? No. What does the prodigal say when he comes back to his, comes back to his father? He says, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. David is saying, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son, but I am. Please, please don't forget that. And, and he's not trying to leverage God with that. He is, he is claiming the promise that God has made. And so this is taking place in the context of a relationship. You know, when we ask God's forgiveness, are we asking it in the context of His promise? I think one of the reasons we're so scared to, to confess our sin, one of the reasons we're, we're so terrified to, to admit our failures it's because we don't really, on some level, we re don't really trust God's constancy. We think that there's a bridge too far. We think there's a sin too great. We think that there is something that we can do that is more powerful than the grace of God's love and the cross. But David's saying, no, I am absolutely going to trust, trust you. I'm going to put all my eggs in this basket and claim your covenant love. But David is absolutely aware of his sin. David's plea is not that God would just forget about it. Oh, come on, this is no big deal, Lord. This is, you know, I, I realize I did something wrong, and yeah, I mean, adultery and murder. Those are pretty bad. Yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it, but it's no big deal, right? Look at all the good stuff I've done. No, he doesn't say any of that. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. David throws himself on the mercy of God because he knows how serious his sin is. I think one of the great tragedies of contemporary Christianity is that we don't take sin seriously anymore. And I'm not saying that to, become a, you know, to be known as a fire and brimstone preacher or anything like that. I'm not a, a big moralist, Pharisee, judgmental type person. I say that because when we stop taking sin seriously, we stop taking grace seriously. When sin is no longer terrifying, grace is no longer amazing. So we need to understand what sin is. The great 19th century Dutch theologian Herman Bovink likened sin 
to spiritual pollution. You may remember me telling you that back in June we had a fire in our house up in my daughter's bedroom while she was uh, away um, while she was away working for the summer. There was an electrical fire after a thunderstorm, and it burned out one of the dormers in, our, in that upstairs bedroom. Um, you know, after the firemen came, after the fire was put out, and all that kind of stuff, we had a lot of cleanup to do. And you know, one of the things that you have to deal with after a fire is smoke damage. I mean, after you've cleaned up all the broken glass and all of the, the drywall and pulled up the carpet and after you've gotten rid of all that mucked up insulation, there's still the smell and it penetrates the couch cushions and the walls and the bedding and the, and the carpet. It's everywhere. And you can't get it out by yourself. That's when I learned the word remediation. You know, we'll come back to that for a second. But, but Bavink says that sin is like that pollution. It's, it's like smoke damage. It gets into everything. Sin is a pollution that gets into everything. Even the Apostle Paul says, even when we think we're doing good, even when we're trying to do good, he says in Romans chapter 7, evil is close at hand. And if we don't deal with sin on that deep level, it's going to infect and pollute everything we do. I remember, you know, anytime I would walk into Elle's room, whenever I would walk in there, I would be, that smell would hit me and my heart would start racing. And it would trigger that memory of that night when that room was on fire. I and mean, until you get rid of that smell, you're never at peace. So we continue, verse 3. For I know my transgression is my, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In these verses, David is saying, I know what my sins are. He's guilty of adultery. He's guilty of murder both of which, under Mosaic law, are capital crimes. That means he's got two death penalty worthy crimes on his record now. If he wasn't the king, he would have been executed for these things. But he's also got a third, a third infraction in there. That word, or that infraction, that crime, is treason. This is what does he say? Against you and you only have I sinned. He's saying these are not just sins against, De against Bathsheba and Uriah. These are sins against you, Lord. I have betrayed you. You have given me one job to be the king, to lead your people in your ways. And I have betrayed you. And this is how serious this is for David. Let me give you a really simple summary of sin. You know, there are all kinds of ways to define sin. We have the, the Greek word harmartia, which is an archery term, which means to miss the mark. But if we really want a fuller understanding of what it means, look at what Jesus says about love. Jesus summarizes the whole law of Moses, the whole law of Israel, the whole law of God, by saying that it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, sin, missing the mark, is this. It is the rejection of God and the rejection of people. 
Sin is first the rejection of God, either through rebellion or denial or ignorance. But second, it is the rejection of people through hostility, through abuse, through neglect or apathy. Think about the way Jesus talked about love, and then think about the way He summarized all of the law and the prophets. Sin is the rejection of God and the rejection of people. When we defy or reject God, we're saying that God's love, God's truth, God's authority, those things don't matter. And when we reject people, we're saying that other people don't matter. Their peace, their joy, their lives don't matter. And when we treat God like He doesn't matter, or treat other people or ourselves like they don't matter, whether we do it deliberately or casually, those toxic attitudes get into everything that we do, and they pollute our lives like smoke damage. Our rebellion from God's authority and our rejection of other people fouls everything we do. As Paul says, it perverts our view of others and it leads to sexual immorality, pornography, exploitation, neglect, abuse, jealousy, anger, enmity, division, and rivalry. It leads to addiction and drunkenness. It leads to racism, injustice, and political corruption. It traps us in anxiety, despair, and addiction and distorts our understanding of who we really are and why we really exist. It leads to idolatry, superstition, atheism, and heresy. All those things that turn our attention away from the real God who loves us and who can really make a difference in our lives. Because like smoke, it blinds us to the truth of who God really is and who we were created to be as people in God's image. And like smoke, sin will suffocate you and blind you and poison you and overwhelm you. This is how serious David is about sin. Whether it's against oneself or against one's neighbor, or against God. So look at verse 5 for a second. Verse 5 gives us his new perspective on sin. For I know my, excuse me, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, I want to make sure I clarify these, these statements. This is not a statement about either his mother, <laughs> that she was a bad person, or about the act of sex. He is not saying that sexual intercourse in and of itself is evil or that his mother in particular was evil. He is applying here to the, or appealing here to the human condition. This is a statement about original sin. I am born into an environment of sin. If I am born in the swamp, I'm going to smell like the swamp. If I'm born in, you know, if I'm born in the desert, I'm going to smell like the desert. He's saying, this is the environment in which I was born, and so these are the things that corrupt me. And so he's saying, you know, it's inevitable. As Paul says in Romans, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none, not one, no one is righteous. We're all in this environment. So he is saying, yes, you know, he is saying, you know, to err is human. But he's not punting his own personal responsibility. Because look what he also says. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Yes, we live in an environment of disease, but I'm sick. You know, yes, we live in a, in a culture of selfishness and greed and depravity and all these sorts of things, but it's not just the culture, it's me too. I've bought into it. You know, I've, I've participated in it. You know, I'm just as guilty of injustice as the, as the tyrant. Because if I indulge in it, if I benefit from it, even if I do it passively, I'm still a part of the system. 
but it's my guilt. And when we live in that environment of sin, it's going to come out personally. But he says it five times, or six times. My, 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 my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. And so David wants us to understand the, the universality and the need for sin. So this is a good place for us to understand this does apply to us. Because is there anybody here who was not born of a mother? I mean, test tube babies in the crowd. No, okay. You know, that's, you know, that is the human condition. He's appealing to this broken and fallenness of, hu- of sinful humanity. Let's look, go on. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Now again, as I mentioned a second ago, in the aftermath of that fire, we learned a lot about restoration. And of course, we learned a lot. We learned that a critical part of the restoration process is remediation. What is remediation? Remediation means simply deep cleaning. Before we could go into Ellie's bedroom again, it had to be cleaned deeply. Before we could use that room again, it had to be cleaned deeply. How does God deal with the pollution, with the smoke damage that corrupts our lives? How does a holy God restore His unholy people? Well, look look first at at verse 6. You know, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. If you, if you go back to your reading on, uh, on Psalm, uh, Psalm 86 today, in Psalm 86, um, you also see this. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. God begins the remediation pro- process by calling us back to the truth of his word. You know, what is it? He wants us to understand His wisdom. He wants to change us in, this, in our inward being by teaching us the wisdom of His revelation, of what He has said. So, you know, the, one of the things that is critical to our restoration and our, our repentance process is going back to God's Word and realigning ourselves with Him. Remember what Isaiah says, Turn to me. Repent, Jesus says. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn around. Get in line with what God's doing. Otherwise, you're just going to continue to wallow in the same pollution that you've always always existed in. So, first of all, you know, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. But then, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, these are all, I mean, he gets into some really interesting, some interesting cleaning Paired or, uh, analogies here, but it's personal. You know, before you can come into God's presence, you have to get cleaned deeply. You know, when I was a, a teenager and when I was a, a you know late elementary school, I was in Weeblos and Boy Scouts, and Cub Scouts, all that stuff. And whenever we, you know, I used to love to go on camping trips, but whenever I would go on a camping trip, you know, I would come home and my mom would be standing at the door and she'd say, "Stop, stop. You've been out in the woods." For three days around campfires in the mud and the pine straw that's pine needles for you Texans um, you have been around other boys you know you've been blowing up beef stew cans in the fire you smell horrible you're not coming in my house go in the carport 
strip, <laughs> then walk to the shower, don't touch anything on your way. <laughs> and I did it. <laughs> Come out, do it again. <laughs> you know, we, we are not, you know, because, and you know, my clothes had to stay out. My, she made my dad take the clothes to the washing machine. Um, but you know, all that, it was just so, the, all those yucky teenage boys and camping smells were just saturating me. And you know, and, and one might say, well, you know, before she would let you into your house, she made you clean up. That's, you know, that's like works righteousness. You had to clean yourself up before she would admit you. No, 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 she was going to admit me. She provided the water and she provided the welcome. She provided the means. Yes, I had to get clean. But she wanted me to get clean, and she provided me the means to do that. David is saying, God, wash me, clean me, give me that deep cleaning. Blot out. It means to wipe away. It means to erase. Erase those things that I've done. He says, he says um, wash me thoroughly. This is, a, this is a, an expression in Hebrew. It's, it's talking about laundering me. Launder me. You know, give, you know, give me the deep cleanings. You know, you, don't just use water, use steam. And third, purge me with hyssop. This alludes to the sprinkling of blood on lepers when they're declared, you know, it, you, know, if they, you know, if they want to be declared ritually clean after being unclean, they had to be sprinkled with sacrificial blood. You know, people ask, why, you know, why do you Presbyterians sprinkle babies? I use more water than sprinkling because I used to because you know, I grew up in the South and I've always got a little bit of Baptist in me. But um, you know, why do we sprinkle? It's because there's so many incidents of, of, of cleaning, of atonement, that involve you know, the sprinkling of blood on the, you know, on the, on the sinner or on the, you know, on the child or whatever. Because it's an act of ritual purity. It's that cost. It's that, it's that precious essence of life. You know, we think about it in a New Testament context, but it's there. Purge me, deep cleaning, deep clean me. Take away all that foulness. When God restores us, He not only erases us, but scrubs out the spiritual pollution that poisons our relationship with Him and with other people. Now I love this verse 8, and then we're going to close up. Let me hear joy and gladness. What's He referring to there? The idea here is, Kind of like, again, parallel to the story of the prodigal son. What happened when the prodigal son came home? They gave him a bath, they put a ring on his finger, and then what did they do? They had a party for him. The party was so raucous. People were celebrating his homecoming so much that the older brother heard it when he was coming home. Now, that's a, that gets into a whole other story, but you know, David's saying, Lord, let me come home. Don't just, don't just let me sleep in the shed, Lord. Let me come home. I don't want to just come back to neutral. I want to be your son again. I want to be, I want to be your child again. I mean, this is, he's clinging to his father's robe saying, I'm not going to be satisfied with, with neutrality. I need your love. I want your love. I don't deserve it. But there's nothing better. There's nothing better. It is of surpassing worth. Let's look at this next section. We may not get all the way to the end here today. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. I love these verses. Create in me a clean heart, O God, um, because that's, 
that is really getting to the, to the power of our restoration. Because this word that David uses, create, is a word that is used exclusively with God. It's the Hebrew word barah. And it is the word used to describe creation. And what it means is to make something out of nothing. It's not like, you know, when we use the word create, we're talking, you know, I, I created this PowerPoint uh, presentation. I created this lecture. I, I, I created this, you know, if, you, if you're into knitting, I created this blanket or the sweater. No, 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 you didn't create that. You made it, but you didn't barat it. To barat would mean that you said, sweater. <laughs> and it came from nothing, ex nihilo. You know, when we make stuff, we make stuff out of other stuff. When God creates, he creates out of nothing but the power of his own will. And David is saying, I don't want you just to fix my heart. I don't want you to just glue it back together. I don't want you to staple it together. I want you to give me a clean heart, oh God. I want you to give me a new heart, oh God. Because that other one is trashed. I mean, Jeremiah alludes to the same thing using slightly different language. But we have to understand, he is saying, Lord, do what only you can do. Do what only you can do. I mean, you, you can talk to me about my broken heart all day long. You can comfort me, you can console me, you can reassure me, but you can't give me a new heart. David saying, I want it to be that thorough. And then I'm going to skip ahead here because this is, um, this is so important. Let's look at this. The next section. Then I will treat, teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice where I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. When God gives us a clean heart, when God restores us, when He forgives us, there should be two byproducts that come from that. I'm going to start with the second one first. The second one is worship. When we know that we are truly forgiven, when we are truly restored, our natural reaction to that ought to be worship. What's another word for worship? Gratitude. Praise. If you are not thankful that God has forgiven you, then what's wrong? I mean, here's the thing. God can forgive us. God has provided the grace. God's done all that sort of thing. But I don't think it's really transformational until, until we understand, until we come to a place of gratitude. And I'm not talking about gratitude. And this is, you know, one of the things he's saying in this verse is, you don't want worship that fakes it. You don't want worship that goes through the motion. You don't want worship that says, oh, well, I've got to be thankful, so thank you, God. He wants the sincerity. He wants, I mean, when we are truly, when we truly appreciate how amazing His grace is, then we will burst forth in worship, thanking God for what He has done. But that's not all. And this is probably the most controversial point that I'm going to make this morning. He says, When He is forgiven, when He is restored, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. If our 
hearts are truly restored, then two things are restored. Worship, which I've just mentioned, and testimony. Testimony, witness, evangelism, sharing your faith is the necessary byproduct of forgiveness, of restoration. I'm going to go ahead and say this. If you are not, if I am not sharing our faith, if we're not telling other people what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, how He's forgiven us, how He's restored us, how He has made us clean, then I would ask myself, am I really restored? I mean, if you have a faith, or if you think you have a faith that can accept all that forgiveness, that, can be, that you can be saved from the peril... You can be saved from brokenness. You can be saved from from all of that destruction and think, oh, it's no big deal. I don't need to tell anybody about this. I think that's a heart check. Because I think that what David is saying here is that, Lord, when we are restored, if we are really transformed, then we cannot help but sharing our faith. Now, I'm not saying you're not transformed. I'm not saying you're not restored. But I'm asking what's holding you back from that? Why do we not burst forth? Why don't we tell people like the blind man in John chapter 11? You know, when they came to him, they said, you know, this Jesus guy, he's, he's weird. He's a troublemaker. He's a, you know, he's a charlatan. What did the blind man say? I don't know about any of that. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. Now, he's not saying that you have to be a theologian. He's just saying that you need to tell people what Jesus Christ did for you because restoration leads to a restored testimony. A restored heart leads to restored testimony. Are you, are we, am I telling other people what God has done for me? I think this is the biggest challenge of this, of this passage. The purpose of God's restoration is His glory. When He restores us, it is for the purpose of His glory. Jonathan Edwards, who you all read back in 8th, 9th, 10th grade in American literature, famous Puritan preacher, famous for a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Most maligned preacher in American history. People think that that's a just a fire and brimstone sermon. You know what that sermon is all about? It's all about grace. It's all about saying that God had no reason to forgive us, but He forgave us anyway, just because He loves us. But in another sermon, uh, his, I believe his sermon on Romans 9, 18, I can't even remember what the title of it was. In that sermon, he says that God gets more glory from our salvation and restoration from the salvation of one and restoration of one person than he would from the justice served on every sinner who's ever lived. God gets more more glory from our salvation than he does from the damnation of sinners. In other words, he wants us to share. He wants us to tell what he's done for us. How can we not? David says, you know, you know, t- created me a, he- a clean heart, O oh God, and then I will teach transgressors your ways. And how many times have you asked God to forgive you? 
How often have you then said, God, forgive me so that I can tell other people what you've done for me? Most of the time when we ask for God's forgiveness, we're doing what? We're going, hope nobody ever finds out about that. What if we believed in God's restoration so much that we said, you know what? I was once a sinner. I was, you know, I did do this. I was, I, you know, I did sin against you and against God. But He's restoring me. He's forgiven me. And that same forgiveness, that same restoration, that same love, that same mercy, that same grace is available for you too. I just want to say this because I want to push this out. That we are sitting on the greatest message, the greatest medicine that the world has ever known. I mean, what if you found out, what if tomorrow they found out that there is a doctor in Geneva, Switzerland who figured out this whole coronavirus thing five years ago? And he was sitting on it. Y'all, every single one of us who has been forgiven, who's been cleaned, who's been restored by the blood of the Lamb is doing the same thing if we aren't telling other people about it. I'm not saying that you have to, you know, that you have to become one of those people on the bus who scares people in the, <laughs> scares people out of hell. I just want you to share people, share people with the grace that you've received so that you can love them into heaven. Because that's what he's done. Please let that convict you. If you're convicted of your sin, also be convicted of this challenge. That just as he wants to restore you, he wants to restore his other children as well. That's all the time we've got for, for today. I'm just going to leave it on that. Please, when you read this psalm, hear both the grace and the challenge. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving us your grace, but thank you for giving us so much grace that, that it can overflow to other people. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, but help me to sing the rest of the song too. Teach me to teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will return to you. Lord, make me not the last sinner to ask for forgiveness, but the first of the next, of the next, of the next. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.